Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today we head to one of my favourite cities, Glasgow, and follow the stories of members of a violent drugs gang. Spoiler alert, it didn't end well for them. But hey, I guess you knew that already. After last week's story of domestic violence leading to the tragic death of Holly Gazard, please head to the UK True Crime Facebook group where a member, Christopher Woodruff, has set up a fundraiser in support of refuge and domestic abuse. I'm sure you'll agree that anything we can do to help save these lives is valuable, so please help support Christopher's initiative. Before we start, a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters. That's Dark and Stormy, Debbie Robertson, Georgina Ellis and belatedly Heather Revel. Thank you so much. It is so appreciated. Please sign up today to support the world's 324th favourite true crime podcast and take a listen to the 17 bonus episodes and other exclusive content, including last week's video from me about the future of this podcast. I'm delighted that this week's show is sponsored by Beer52.com. How would you like a free case of craft beer? Well, as a listener to my show, I'd like to give you this opportunity to thank you for listening with the help of our friends at Beer52.com. Just go to Beer52.com slash true crime to claim a free case. Go on, do it now. Beer52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. Searching out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries and bringing them back for their members. There's a whole world of craft beer out there. I love them. And this isn't the sort of stuff you can pick up at the supermarket. Every month focuses on a new country or theme. And if you sign up now, you'll get the chance to try a case of the best of British craft beers as part of their Summer Bangers selection for free. This features the country's best craft brewers such as Northern Monk, Ilkley, Red Willow and Thornbridge. You'll be able to read all about the beers and learn more about how they are made in the 100-page ferment magazine included in the box. As a listener to my show, you can try your first case for free. Just pay £2.95 postage. That's eight incredible craft beers, ferment magazine and a snack delivered with free next day shipping. It's a no-brainer. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beers and see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. Beer 52 has a five-star rating on Trustpilot, so it's easy for you to see that their members love the service. So please just visit beer52.com slash truecrime and claim your free case today. Great craft beer and supporting this podcast. That's beer52.com slash truecrime. Let's quickly set some context for May 1995. Number one in the UK this week was the unbearably awful Robson and Jerome, destroying the classic Unchained Melody. I still can't remember, who's the bloke who does the fishing shows at midnight on Dave? Which one is that? The US charts were topped by Montel Jordan with This Is How We Do It. And in Australia this year, the top-selling single was Coolio with Gangster's Paradise. Kind of apt for today, I guess. Kind of. In the news this month, it was the last basketball game at Boston Gardens as Magic beat Celtics. The towering Jacques Chirac won the French presidency. Japanese police arrested cult leader Shoku Asahara and charged him with the nerve gas attack on Tokyo subway earlier in the year. 
And sad news, this is when Superman actor Christopher Reeves was paralysed from the neck down after falling from his horse during a competition in Virginia. How much time have you spent in Glasgow? It's Scotland's largest city and the third largest in the UK, around 415 miles northwest of London. I don't think anyone would disagree that Edinburgh is a much prettier city. But there is a Glasgow saying that you'll have more fun at a Glasgow funeral than at an Edinburgh wedding. And I think there's something about the city that always makes time spent there well spent. But make no mistake, some parts of Glasgow are tough places to live and to thrive. Although not as bad as they once were, one of the worst in the 80s was Fergusley Park in the Paisley area of Glasgow. It was one of the most deprived parts of the whole of the UK, with major drug and social issues. As we know, some politicians are not purely in it for themselves, and they do sometimes try to do things for the right reasons. These actions can achieve success sometimes, but also backfire spectacularly. In the mid-1990s, local politicians in Paisley tried to alleviate the unemployment and other social issues in the Fergusley Park area by setting up a community business sector called Fergusley Park Community Business, and the local government provided almost £200,000 to fund free premises and preferential contracts. FCB Security was formed from this business and quickly became a front for local criminals, who in reality were dealing drugs and running extortion rackets from behind the face of this organisation. One of the key players in the FCB was Stuart Specky Boyd, and some of his team including George Goofy Doherty, Robert Piggy Pickett and Stuart Gillespie, whose brother Billy was manager of the company FCB. The Scotsman newspaper reported that heroin was a big problem in Scotland at this time, but supply was short. This demand led to the growth of a market for Temezipam. For the dealers who quickly latched onto this opportunity, such as Specky Boyd and the FCB gang, the prescription drug, normally prescribed as a sleeping pill, was the perfect answer to this heroin shortage. Widely available and readily prescribed to pensioners, the capsules were easy to get hold of, leaking their millions from factories and often collected in doorstep buys from mainly middle-aged people with repeat prescriptions. For addicts desperate for heroin, the liquid in their temazepam gel capsule, when withdrawn, heated, placed in a syringe and injected in sufficient quantities, was the ideal replacement fix. But as sales of the drug grew, it became the cause of a bloody drugs war centred around Paisley that would spark a decade-long power struggle between drug barons over attempts to replace the town's jellies, as it was known, with the more lucrative heroin trade. Boyd aligned himself with one of Paisley's most notorious criminal gangs, quickly earning himself a reputation as an enforcer. According to one former associate, Specky Boyd was the man who would knock on the door to call in drug debts and then threaten to cut off your fingers. But as we have heard many times on this podcast, although the financial rewards are often lucrative, there are inherent problems with the business from addicts who fail to pay and other criminals trying to muscle in on your share of the business. So when 26-year-old addict Mark Jenny borrowed £40 from Boyd's gang in December 1994, to fund his habit by some small-time dealing, 
it was a real problem when he didn't make the repayments. Especially when the debt had increased and approached £1,000. Specky Boyd knew he couldn't display any weakness and that he knew he needed to make Rennie see the error of his ways. And then to exacerbate the situation, two men accused one of Rennie's brothers of selling drugs for another dealer, which absolutely couldn't be tolerated by Boyd and the gang. Later that day, men wearing the uniforms of SCB security marched down the street towards the Rennie family home in Fergusley Park. The gang that day were Goofy Doherty, Piggy Pickett and Stuart Gillespie. Stuart Gillespie, who was in charge, handed a gun to Pickett and told him, shoot the fat bastard. Piggy Pickett clicked the trigger of the shotgun but didn't fire, so Goofy Doherty weighed in the machete and mayhem ensued. It wasn't a pretty scene, but it's so hard to do justice to the naked, uncontrolled violence. The brother's mum, Anne Rennie, watched in horror as Pickett pointed the gun at her sons and smiled as he pulled the trigger. She had previously warned Mark Rennie not to borrow money from the gang, especially Gillespie, who she described as an illegal moneylender who charged extortionate rates of interest. As we've seen on previous episodes involving drugs gangs, grudges are held and revenge is usually sought and when it does arrive it's usually violent and often deadly. As the months stretched on, Rennie's girlfriend, 34-year-old Margaret Brown, knew that the situation was approaching boiling point as for weeks Stuart Gillespie had made death threats to them both and had threatened to put bullets in their heads. On the 23rd of May 1995, after another threat by Gillespie that he would kill them, Mark Rennie went out but later returned and snorted some drugs. As he left the house again, Margaret tried to pull him back and as she did so, she felt a gun hidden in the left sleeve of his coat. But Rennie escaped her grasp and it was the last time that Margaret would see her boyfriend alive. Rennie took his revenge on the gang by vandalising two cars owned by the Gillespie brothers. But there was no delayed retribution on this occasion, as Stuart Gillespie retaliated by shooting Mark Rennie as he fled the scene, and the bullets pierced his lung, spleen and heart. Mark Rennie, who was just 27 years old, died at the scene with witnesses noting the total lack of respect for his death by men standing by the lifeless body laughing and smirking. When detectives arrived at the scene, they found a sawn-off double-barreled shotgun hidden in the dead man's jacket sleeve, with a live cartridge in each chamber, and six more in his pockets. Ironically, as it was politicians who had facilitated the creation of FCB, the local MP Irene Adams, now Baroness Adams, took on the gang, and she was fiercely critical, not only about the gangsters themselves, but the company which shielded them, FCB. She and her family received death threats for her high-profile criticism and allegedly a contract was put out on her life. But the attack never came. Police found witnesses to the murder of Rennie hard to find as people were terrified by Boyd's gang. Some witnesses' silence was ensured through violence with one man beaten up so badly that he lost an eye. Detectives knew that Stuart Gillespie had pulled the trigger, but to ensure he was convicted, Strathclyde Police set up their first witness protection unit, and due to this initiative, 
some witnesses did come forward. Would you have done? I like to think I would have done, but in reality, I'm not so sure. Security for the trial was unprecedented, with witnesses being taken to and from court by members of the serious crime squad, and everyone entering the court building was searched and had to go through a metal detector screen. Remember, this was 1996. No cars were allowed to park opposite the court, and police secretly filmed anyone near the building. One witness protected by police, Sheila McCurdy, told the court that previously her brother had been murdered in Paisley. On the night that Rennie died, she said that Gillespie came into her house and went upstairs to her bedroom. Later she heard him shout, There's the bastard there! Then another man wearing a hood came in her back door, ran through her house and out of the front door towards Rennie in the street. Rennie tried to run and she heard a bang and then Gillespie said, Has he missed the bastard? Detectives investigating the case paid tribute to the bravery of witnesses who gave evidence in open court, stressing the amount of courage it took. But their bravery was rewarded as 37-year-old Stuart Gillespie was found guilty of the murder of Mark Rennie. He was also found guilty of attempting to murder three of Mark Rennie's brothers and another man on November 2nd, 1994 in the original gun and machete attack. The judge jailed him for life on the murder charge and 10 years on the attempted murder charges to run concurrently. Robert Piggy Pickett, aged 31, was jailed for 12 years for attempting to shoot and murder the Rennie brothers and another man. And George Goofy Doherty, aged 36, was jailed for 7 years for a machete attack on Stuart Rennie. The Crown dropped charges of assault against two others. Specky Boyd was due to face the court with the other gang members for conspiracy to murder, but he fled to Spain. Somewhat surprisingly, he then returned to face the charge at a trial in 1997, where in a special defence of incrimination, Boyd named Stuart Gillespie, his brother Billy, and key Crown witnesses Sheila McCurdy and George Kerr as their killers. After seven days of the hearing and 45 minutes of consideration, the jury unanimously found him not guilty. FCB subsequently collapsed owing more than £300,000 and astonishingly, a four-year investigation into alleged fraud there did not result in any charges. I wonder why that was. Probably best not to go there. But Boyd's reputation was enhanced after he walked away from court a free man. Not just the murder of Rennie, but a number of other crimes, including hits, in which he was a suspect, brought him to the attention of some of Scotland's bigger criminal players. One of these was John Healy, Tam McGraw's brother-in-law. We've discussed Tam McGraw on this podcast before, and you may recall that he was really someone not to be messed with. To go into business with Healy, Boyd had to be confident about his ability to deliver. And he was. Healy hired him as an enforcer, and shortly afterwards Healy was sent to prison, when in 1997 he was given a 10-year sentence for the importation of £220 of cannabis in a kid's holiday minivan. Healy trusted Boyd, and Boyd looked after Healy's taxi business and security firm whilst Healy was in prison. Even for someone with the reputation that Boyd had cultivated, when one of McGraw's men asked a favour, it really wasn't something you were able to refuse. In the year 2000, a close associate of McGraw, 
Lewis Scooby Rodden, made contact with Boyd asking him to help solve a little problem he had. Rodden, who'd been charged with extorting and terrorising another security company principal, didn't want the main witness at the trial to give evidence and needed someone to persuade him that it would be a bad idea if he did. Boyd was happy to threaten the witness, John Jeffrey, but as the paper Glasgow Live reported, he made a schoolboy error, failing to notice CCTV in the room where he did the threatening. Don't ID that fella, or things will happen to you, Specky warned. Jeffrey replied, things better not, to which Boyd threatened. After the case, we'll do you. With Specky Boyd, not many words were needed, as his fearsome reputation guaranteed that action was certain to follow. But John Jeffrey ignored Boyd's warning, and he did testify. But Rodden walked out of court a free man, following a not-proven verdict. Later, in October, Boyd made good with his threat, and Jeffrey's house was sprayed with bullets. He survived. With the CCTV images and the confirmation of what had happened from witnesses at the trial, the police were soon looking for Boyd, and a warrant was put out for his arrest. He again went on the run, spending time back in his favourite haunts in Spain, as well as Scotland, before he was finally arrested at the Scottish ski resort of Aviemore. The charge was intimidating a witness, and in July 2001 he faced trial. Described by the prosecution as the right-hand man of jailed drug baron Healy, Boyd cut a deal with the authorities, admitting that he threatened fellow security boss John Jeffrey with serious bodily injury in a bid to stop him giving evidence in the extortion trial. For this, he ended up spending 18 months in the slammer. From 2001 when he was out of jail, Boyd continued to attract the attention of the police, particularly the Scottish Drug Enforcement Agency, which during the last six months had been alerted to the father of two's movements by officers from Paisley's K Division. Within a year of his release, he was living in Spain at the white-walled Andalusian town of Mijas, above the Fengirola coast. He continued to make a good living bringing drugs into Scotland, but at this time it's reported that he started to attract the unwelcome attention of the Russian Mafia. A Scotsman article in 2003 on Boyd quotes an unnamed Scottish detective who told them how Boyd was thought to be planning something big with the security business he ran acting as a front. He said, Boyd had his eye on early retirement and was spending a lot of time shuttling back between the Costa del Sol and Glasgow. We have no doubt that he was planning the most audacious deal of his career. And then on the 28th of June 2003, 40-year-old Boyd was driving his Audi TT sports car to Malaga Airport with his daughter and the daughter of his girlfriend to collect another girl who was joining them for Scotland for a summer break in the sunshine. Shortly after leaving the airport, Boyd's car careered through a crash barrier on the outskirts of Mijas and ploughed into a BMW heading the other way. Six people were killed. Boyd died instantly, along with three other Scots, including his daughter, Anna Nicola Gavin, 21, her best friend, Louise Ann Douglas, 21, and three-year-old Helen Williams, the daughter of his girlfriend, Catherine Finlay. Two occupants of the BMW, a 42-year-old Spanish factory manager and his 13-year-old son also died in the crash. 
The only survivor from the second vehicle was a 43-year-old Spanish lady, with surgeons seeing her survival as miraculous. Such was the ferocity of the crash that both cars were left as unrecognisable burnt-out shells. According to one of the first officers on the scene, it looked as if a car bomb had exploded. And his instincts, this theory, have not been ruled out by some even now. After Specky Boyd's death, it became clear that he'd been at the centre of a massive drug surveillance operation by the National Crime Intelligence Service. An NCIS source told Glasgow Live, We were well aware of who he was and his involvement in drugs and organised crime. He was the subject of our attention in the days before he died. Even the fact that he crashed at the wheel of a £40,000 car is interesting as his probation records declare him as unemployed. Now was this just an accident on the bendy roads in that part of Spain where accidents aren't uncommon or was he killed by an enemy he'd made in his criminal life? The Scotsman paper reported the following. Within Malaga's elegant marble-clad police headquarters, there is growing concern the incident was a meticulously orchestrated hit on Boyd by a major criminal organisation, and the other victims simply got in the way. According to well-placed police sources in Glasgow, reports are circulating within Europol that the 40-year-old Scott was killed by Russian hitmen because he had failed to pay them for a 1.5 million shipment of cocaine to Scotland's west coast. It is believed in some quarters that the Russian gangsters placed a bomb incorporating a timer underneath Boyd's car as it sat outside his villa. When I first read this, I really doubted whether this sort of thing could happen. But the Scotsman reports that Boyd isn't the first person suspected to suffer this fate at the hands of the Russian Mafia arguably the world's most powerful criminal organisation, with bases in every major city in the world. The gangs, many of which are loosely affiliated, made money by selling off old Red Army guns and explosives to terrorist groups such as the IRA and crime gangs in the West such as the Yardies. And they gained further notoriety and cash by supplying mercenaries for foreign wars. The power vacuum left by conflicts in the Balkans and inform the Soviet states, allowed the organisation to establish smuggling routes for drugs and illegal immigrants. They've made inroads into Scotland by supplying sex workers for saunas in Edinburgh, and establishing links with major gangland figures in Glasgow, both areas we've referred to on previous episodes of this podcast. The Scotsman tells how one Sunday night in August 2001, another man, Michael McGuinness, was spending the evening with his Brazilian girlfriend at his apartment, just outside the town of Midges Costa. At 2.30am, two men rang his buzzer. And four days later, McGuinness's Range Rover was discovered in Malaga Airport's car park. When the boot was opened, the Irishman was found handcuffed with a big bag over his head. He'd been suffocated. The question of why he was killed remains unanswered but according to sources in Ireland, he was wanted for his part in a massive money laundering operation linked to the local drugs trade. By the very nature of these events and the people involved, I guess we will never know for sure what happened to McGuinness or Boyd. But one thing is for sure, and that is that Specky Boyd was dead at 40. So what happened to the rest of his gang? 
53-year-old Stuart Gillespie also died violently in a Paisley flat in April 2013 at the hands of convicted killer Norman Carlton, the ex-boyfriend of his daughter Natalie. When Natalie refused to answer his calls, 28-year-old Carlton arrived to pick up some of his things, being let into the house by Gillespie. At Carlton's trial, Gillespie's daughter Natalie told the court that her dad had let Carlton in, but after initially going to a bedroom to get his stuff, he burst into the living room with something shiny and attacked the men. She said that Carlton had grabbed Gillespie by the neck and stabbed him. Natalie said that Carlton then ran by her and told her, This is your fault, you cow. Natalie sat in shock with her dad at the fire surround and she lay with him screaming as the life slowly ebbed from his body. Carlton had stabbed Gillespie multiple times, including two blows to the heart. Carlton had also knifed Natalie's ex-partner, Robert Lawther, in the groin. At his trial, in addition to being convicted of the murder of Gillespie, he was also convicted of attempting to murder Robert Lawther. A real class act, as I think you can imagine, after being found guilty and sentenced to at least 22 years in prison, Carlton taunted Paisley's family by pounding his chest and shouting out in court, Sod it, I'm here, he's not, ha ha ha. Nice. Stuart Gillespie's brother Billy died young, but in a non-violent manner, of cancer. As for Goofy Doherty, well, it didn't end well for him either. In prison he got involved in trouble, and depending on who you believe, he's alleged to have ordered at least one hit from inside. He was also the guy who corrupted Glasgow lawyer Angela Bailey into smuggling drugs into Bar Linney Prison. Do you remember that case? But when he was released, he hadn't changed. He was still arrogant, aloof, and happy to make money the only way he knew how, which was drugs and extreme violence. Glasgow Live reports how Lona Goofy tried to become a big drug dealer, but he forgot one of the principles of business, paying for the drugs he would sell. Instead, he turned up with a couple of guns and simply robbed the careers, dealers, and sometimes even the big men behind the organisation. Not out of the Carnegie How to Make Friends and Influence People mould, he hadn't been a popular man before and he was fast collecting more enemies. The year 2006 was a bad one for Goofy. Five times people had tried to kill him, and every time they came close. By August the 28th, he still hadn't fully recovered from a vicious stabbing when he walked down a street in Tollcross, Glasgow, for the last time. Suddenly a car ran over him, reversed and ran over him again. As he lay bleeding in agony, writhing on the ground, men jumped out and stabbed him repeatedly in the neck to avoid the stab-proof vest he was wearing leaving him dead on the streets where he lived his life. And even from the grave, he caused trouble. His 56-year-old sister faced trial for murdering her 81-year-old father in an argument about Goofy. The father died of a heart attack in the row about the unsolved murder of Goofy three years earlier. The jury at the High Court in Glasgow heard McDermott's 999 call in which he sobbed hysterically, I've killed my dad! I strangled him. I started to talk to him tonight about my wee brother. I've been in such a state for two years. 
The court heard how the pair often rowed about Goofy, but following a three-day trial, the jury returned a not-proven verdict after she claimed to have acted in self-defence and Margaret left the free woman. And finally, what about Robert Piggy Pickett? After prison, he went to the big league by joining the Lions crime gang. He's still alive, I think, but it was a close-run thing following an incident in 2006. The Scottish Daily Record described the incident in the following way. Two gangland assassins were caged for a total of 70 years yesterday for an underworld murder that brought terror to the streets of Glasgow. Wearing long coats and old man masks and carrying handguns, Raymond Rainbow Anderson and his sidekick James MacDonald strode in broad daylight into an MOT garage owned by a rival crime clan. They shot one man dead in cold blood and wounded two others. The thugs staged their attack just a hundred yards from a primary school. Donald Finley, QC, defending MacDonald, compared the carnage to a scene from The Godfather. The judge jailed the hitman for life with minimum terms of 35 years each. Piggy was one of the men attacked. He survived, but he was seriously injured and lost a kidney, but he lived to fight another day. Probably the wrong expression, that. So there it is. The story of Specky Boyd and his gang. No happy endings. In such a short episode, it can be hard to portray just how violent and feared these men were. They were absolutely brutally violent men. The question that always hits me when I hear these stories like today's is whether or not it was worth it to them and would they live the same life again if they had the chance. Sure, the main players can make some serious money at the height of their powers. But for the constant risk of capture by police, or worse, violent death at the hands of rivals, is it a price worth paying? Surely you can never really relax even in your own home, as that bang on the door from the men with guns could happen at any time of day or night. But then again, is it the thrill of this lifestyle that makes it all worthwhile? I'll return to Glasgow in a future episode to tell the stories about other members of the criminal underworld. But for now, come and talk about this episode on our Facebook group. There are 1,300 members and we discuss all aspects of UK true crime. You'll be made very welcome. Or why not support the show at patreon.com slash UK true crime and help me keep producing the podcast weekly whilst listening to the 17 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. In fact, why not listen to all 17 on a sunny day whilst drinking excellent craft beer from Beer52? Just head to beer52.com slash truecrime to get your first batch delivered for just £2.95. So that's all from me. So until we speak again next week, be kind, but just as importantly, stay classy. <laughs>